So I finished a book recently. Um, it's a, one of those books that like you buy and then it sits on your shelf for 15 years. Um, and the book was just about discipleship, just a little quick read book. And one of the things that really struck me in that book was he just very simply defined discipleship as helping people to follow Jesus. Just really simple definition. He, dis- he defined discipleship as helping people to follow Jesus. And I think that we tend to overcomplicate it when we say things like, well, you know, you should be making disciples, you should be discipling people. We kind of start to feel soul crushed by that. You know, well, what does it mean to disciple people? I don't know where to begin. And his whole point in the book was we should be looking at all of these concepts and these things through a lens of, you know, how do I help Susie Q follow Jesus better? How do I help my kids follow Jesus better? How do I help my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus learn to follow Jesus? And if we keep that question in mind, it simplifies the process. Because what you realize is that everybody's at a different place in their journey, in their faith journey, for at a different time. And so some people, they need to be encouraged. Some people need to hear the gospel for the first time. Some people need training in how to read the Bible. Everybody needs different things at different times. But the point is, no matter where you are, you need to learn to follow Jesus better. And the question is, what do you need at that point in time? Does that make sense? So over the last few weeks, I guess we're on week five of this series on discipleship. And in the first week, we looked at the importance of the next generation, just about this idea of we need to start thinking about other people instead of ourselves. We need to be uh, reflecting on what it looks like to and means to pass the gospel on to other people. The second thing we talked about was owning the gospel personally and how the reality is that you can't pass on what you don't possess. And so if you're teaching someone about the truth of the scriptures, but you yourself don't know the truth of the scriptures, then you're actually just kind of going through the motions. You're not actually passing anything on. The, the third thing we talked about were predictable patterns. We talked about how discipleship happens both in patterns of life as well as in moments or events. That part of discipleship happening in patterns is, for example, attending the worship gathering with your family. That is a pattern. Or reading the Bible in the morning with your kids. Or praying together with your spouse. That's something that happens consistently. It becomes a pattern. And it becomes modeled to the people around you. That if every time you get together with your group of friends, if you, if you spend five minutes praying, when they get together with a group of friends, they'll be more likely to do that same thing. It's a predictable pattern in your life. And then last week, we talked about how it's not just about patterns, as in, I'm going to go to church service every week, and then my kid will be fine. But it's also realizing that you need to learn to see moments and opportunities where the gospel and the truth of Scripture can be spoken into those moments. And that in those moments, when someone's going through a difficult time, we bring them to the Word, not as the experts, but as that guide, and we say, look at what the Word says. How can we learn from this together? And so, you know, the, James 1 says that we shouldn't be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And so I hope that you guys aren't just hearing these messages and not implementing anything. And so at, at a risk of looking foolish and not really caring, does anybody have a testimony real quick, like a 10-second, 15-second testimony of something that your family or you personally 
have begun implementing over the last five weeks, even if it's a mind change, a, a shift in the way you think. Otherwise, I will go home and cry. <laughs> yes, Jamie. That's great. So just being a little bit more mindful about what you, the family watches before bed. Philippians 4, 8. David. Uh, we, we were on vacation last week, and uh, Scott and I would get up in the morning and read the Bible together. But then um, as, as, the week pro- as the week progressed, more and more spirit came and grit and, and everything just like building on that same shift. I feel like you are really modeling everything that you should like in our family. That's great. So go... Yeah, so going on vacation and modeling the, the a morning time with the Lord, and then more and more people started participating that as the week went on. Maybe one one or two more? Cade. That's good, trying to be mindful of the music we listen to. Again, it's Philippians 4.8, whatever is good and pure and true and trustworthy and excellent, whether it's worthy of praise, think about those things. Eddie. Yeah, last week we talked about kairos moments, moments when we pause. Kairos is the word for time in the Greek, one of the words for time. And so taking advantage of those moments when kids ask a question and we actually engage with them instead of saying because, you know, <laughs> as the answer. And so good stuff. Well, that's good to hear. And it's, remember, it's subtle shifts, subtle shifts. Well, today we're talking about dis- developing what we would call missional rhythms with your family or on your own at work. It's not just a family, right? With your discipleship group, whatever it might be. And so we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 5, and I'm going to read today from the New Living Translation um, for this passage. It begins in verse 9, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. So whether we are here in this body or away from the body, our goal is to please him, him being God. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. And because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. And so let's just pause there. Um, Knowing that he will appear, knowing that all of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and knowing that all of us will give an account for all that is done in this life, Paul tries to be especially mindful of living his entire life in light of a desire to please God. Now, as we're going to see in the next batch of verses, Paul does not think, nor are we suggesting, nor is he suggesting, that you can earn your way to heaven by doing the right things. That's not what Paul is saying. But Paul is saying that what you do does matter. What you do does matter. Now, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And the gospel, which simply means the good news, 
is that he, Jesus, provides a way for people to stand before the Lord forgiven and declared as righteous because they've been given righteousness from the Lord. So knowing that Jesus is the only way, this is Paul's point, knowing that Jesus is the only way to stand before God and not face judgment, Paul lives his life and he works hard, he says in that last verse, verse 11, to persuade people. So because Paul is convinced of this truth, and it isn't just a religious idea, he works hard to persuade people of that reality. And he continues, God knows that we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. This is an important verse for our life in the United States as Christians, okay? Verse 12, are we commending ourselves to you again, Corinthians? No. We are giving you a reason to be proud of us so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than a sincere heart. If it, all, if it, seems, cra- if it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us since we believe Christ died for all. And we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and who was raised for them. Um, You know, if you just look at this passage and you isolate it from all of 2 Corinthians, you can very easily kind of twist it to mean something that it's not. And that doesn't mean that what you get out of it is necessarily going to be unbiblical, but it's not going to be the author's originally intended meaning. You see, some backstory to 2 Corinthians, there were some other teachers who were coming into the city of Corinth who were flashier than Paul, who were better communicators than Paul. They were snazzier dressers than Paul. They were like the ZZ Top of Apostles. Okay, and, and they came in and they charged money um, in order to, to preach and to teach. And they looked at Paul and they claimed that Paul was a fraud because he kind of wasn't the best speaker and he was a little timid in person and, and maybe he took one too many hits on the head with rods or with stones. And so these false, even if they weren't false, these flashier teachers were claiming that the Corinthians shouldn't waste their time listening to Paul and his crew. And they said that the fact that they shouldn't listen to Paul was evidenced by his weakness. In other words, this was a kind of a form of prosperity gospel that they were preaching. The weakness they saw in Paul was that he was poor and impoverished, that he was persecuted that he wasn't very skillful, he wasn't charismatic in terms of his personality, not in terms of his theology. And Paul may not have had a flashy ministry in the world's eyes, but what Paul says he had in this passage is he had a sincere affection, which he said was different from them. He said they had a spectacular ministry that they traveled with an entourage and they had, you know, a PR person who set up all of their 
roadside inns and all that kind of stuff. And Paul says, I, I don't have that, but what I do have is, is sincere affection. And what I do have is this beaten up body that's like a jar of clay. And inside this jar of clay, there is the glory of Christ shining through. And that doesn't make me fraudulent. That makes me consistent with what we've seen throughout the scriptures. And so this is Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians. And so Paul is writing this letter, and indeed this section of Scripture, in part to explain to the church in Corinth that weakness, weakness is not a sign of immaturity, but weakness is actually an opportunity for the power of Christ to shine through all the more. Now, the reason that's important for Paul is because he is showing that his, he has sincere affection and desire for the church in Corinth. The reason it's important to you is because as we talk about living on mission as families, as individuals, as people at work, realize your weakness is not a justification for inactivity. Your weakness is an opportunity for the power of Christ to shine through. Okay, and that's one of the reasons why this is relevant to you as a principle of application. So here Paul is saying, look, I am sincerely desirous of you and I want you to think fondly of me. That's what Paul is trying to say. He says, you have reason to be proud of me as your genuine, sincere father in the faith. You don't have reason to be ashamed of me as the one who led you to Jesus, but everybody else thinks he's kind of a nut, and so we don't really talk about him. And so Paul's conclusion is that even though they don't appreciate his work, even though they don't appreciate his suffering, even though they don't appreciate his genuine affection, he doesn't mind. And he's going to reinforce that if you were going to read the whole book in chapters 12 and 13. He says, I don't mind. Why don't you mind, Paul? And he says, because the genuine love of Christ compels me. And so I'm not trying to convince you, Corinthians. I'm trying to explain to you. But if you don't buy it, it doesn't matter. The genuine love of Christ compels me to serve you, to care for you, to want to equip you, to want to see you reach full maturity, like Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. And so the point is that none of this is about Paul's empire, but it's about God's kingdom. And so why does Paul live for Christ? Why does Paul live for Christ? Because Christ as Paul explains here, he says, Christ died for all. In other words, Christ died for me. And so those who receive this new life by faith, of course I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm now going to live for the one who gave his life for me. And therefore, that results in sacrificial love. Okay, you following me so far? All right, verse 16. So, therefore, we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one point in time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, back when Paul was trying to kill followers of Jesus. But how differently we know him now. Of course, Paul's referencing Acts chapter 9 when he has this epiphany on the road to Damascus and he sees the light and he's blinded to the things of life, but he finally sees Jesus for more than a man in that encounter. So he says, we once looked at Jesus from a merely human point of view, but how differently we know him now. 
What do you mean by that, Paul? Verse 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, and new life has begun. See, here's the question. What would cause someone? What would cause you? What would cause me? What would cause your coworkers, your neighbor? What would cause someone to think so differently about their own life? What would cause someone like Paul from Jerusalem, you know, he's in Jerusalem being trained, he, he's, in, he's going to Damascus, what would cause Paul to all of a sudden care about the people in Corinth? What would cause Paul especially to care about Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, who the Jews were told to hate? What would cause Paul to think differently? What would cause Paul to not care about what these false, flashy teachers thought about him? What would cause someone to look at an adversary and an enemy with pity, love, compassion, and prayer instead of rage? What would cause that kind of change? Well, I can tell you this. It's nothing short of a miracle. That there's no self-help book. There's no guru there's no meditative, contemplative state. None of that will change you enough. That kind of change that Paul is talking about isn't really change at all. It's metamorphosis. It's complete transformation. It is regeneration. It is something different. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 17, the old is gone and the new has come, it has begun. And I love how the New Living Translation says that. That's one of the reasons why I use this version today, although we normally use the ESV. That he says, it literally, he says it has come about. That's that idea, the new life has begun. The process of transformation from birth to maturity is in motion. It's unfolding. And part of the impact of this new life that I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind and I'm, I'm going from being a newborn, reborn person and growing into adolescence and growing into maturity and growing into adulthood, part of that process results in me looking at God differently and me looking at you differently and me looking at the world differently. And so the question becomes, for some of you, you're here, you're exploring Christianity. The question becomes, what do I have to do to get this kind of transformation? Maybe some of you are thinking about that right now. What do I have to do to get this kind of transformation? And Paul's response is clear. You can't do anything, which is why he says in the next verse, all of this is a gift from God. All of that transformation, all of that new birth, all of that old life being gone and the new life begun, all of that is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. See, the transformation is a gift. You didn't do anything to earn it any more than your child did something to be born. Okay? You're brought back. You're reconciled. And then Paul continues... And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. That means restoring relationship that was severed 
no longer counting. How was he restoring relationship? By no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. Now Paul, in the immediate, real, literal interpretation, he's talking about himself, right? But as a principle, it applies to all of us. We are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. What we see here is that God has given us a new life and a task to proclaim the good news. Now, what a privilege. I think we need to change the way we think about this and realize what a privilege this is. Imagine the splendor of being allowed and given and entrusted the privilege of announcing the greatest news to the world. And some of you might be thinking, well, what is that great news? What is the gospel? This is the gospel, that our relationship with our creator God was severed. It was destroyed. It was eviscerated and obliterated because of rebellion in Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter in the Bible. But in Christ's death and resurrection, God is restoring that broken relationship. And those who believe in Jesus are forgiven And God no longer counts their sin against them. And not only that, but he credits them with all of the rightness of Christ. So that when he sees us, he sees the perfection of Jesus. And then he gives us purpose by telling us to share this good news and offering it to others. That the news isn't something we should be ashamed of, but the news is something that we should be thrilled with to tell other people about. And so we go as his ambassadors. We go as his representatives. We are made as his image. And as an ambassador represents his nation or her nation all the time as they live abroad in a foreign country, we are living as Christ's ambassadors, representatives from the kingdom of God, living in the United States of America, representing Jesus and furthering his interests as we go about our day. And what is the message that we proclaim as we go about our day? What is, what is the interest of the king that we hold in our heart? It's this message. We cry out to the world, come back to God. Come back to God. You don't need to do anything. He has done all of the work. Come to God and be forgiven. Come to God and be set free from your sin. Come to God and be set free from all of the backpack of rocks and guilt and all of the ineptitudes that you carry. Come back to God and give him all of that and be made new and walk in freedom despite the fact that you'll mess up tomorrow and the next week and the next month and year after year after year, come back to God because he has done all of the work. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Come and have your sins forgiven. Come and have a relationship with the creator. Come and enter into his love. All of this, if we're honest, sounds too good to be true. And for those of us, as we get older and older and older, it seems even more far-fetched because as we often are reminded of in the scriptures, we have a longer memory of our sin. 
So how is it accomplished? And this is the verse that tells us how God accomplished such a miraculous thing in verse 21. How? How? How can we come back to God? How did you do this? For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we who know nothing but sin might become his righteousness. See, and herein lies the essence of the gospel, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so they would have animal sacrifices in Judaism year after year after year after year after year. They really have them with day after day after day. There's a constant flow of blood coming out of the place of sacrifice, whether it was the tabernacle or the temple. Because without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. And so great, so great in both quantity and quality was my sin and your sin and the sin of humanity that the blood of animals could never remove that sin and that it took Jesus Christ, the God who was man, the only begotten Son of God, to become the sacrifice, to become the offering for us. And in the shedding of His blood and his blood alone can our sins actually be covered and we can be made right with God. And that's good news. And in the moment of our regeneration and transformation, in other words, when that becomes a reality of your life, maybe for some of you, that will become your reality today for the first time. And I pray that it does. But in the moment of our regeneration, we are transformed Peter said that he planted a seed in us, a a seed of life, an imperishable seed of life that just grows and grows. And in that moment, you receive two new realities. One is a gift and one is a task. Here's the gift. You're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has begun. In Jesus, we're born again in the spirit. We are made new And as babies grow, we grow too. And listen, as Jesus becomes more important to you as you grow, guess what happens? You change. You see, this isn't an idea of you saying, I need to change, I need to change. As Jesus becomes more precious to you, he changes you. All of this is a gift. Remember, we said that. Verse 18, I think it was. And as Jesus becomes... As Jesus becomes more important to you, you change. And contrary, listen to me, this is probably so important, I'm about to say, contrary to public popular assumption, the change is not always what you do, though it's some of that as well, but how you do it and why you do it. The change is not always what we do, but it's how we do it and why we do it. What do I mean by that? As Jesus changes you, the focus of your life shifts from thinking only of yourself, and now you start thinking about God, you start thinking about the people around you, you start thinking about the world out there. Instead of serving only yourself and living for your own kingdom, you start having a desire to bless other people and to seek his kingdom. And as these changes and as these affections change within you by the grace of God, you want 
to start living the ordinary rhythms of everyday life with a different kind of intention. See, you didn't stop doing certain things. You just changed how and why you did it. And what that leads to, that's the new, that's the gift, a new creation. That leads to the second thing that we receive, which is the task, being an ambassador for Christ. You see, because in everything you do, God is present. Everywhere you go, you are a child of God. You are a servant to Jesus. You are the one who is sent by the Spirit as his representative. Everything you do counts. Everything you do counts. Everything you do counts. Because Christ plays into the everyday stuff of life. Hear me, people. This is probably one of the biggest mistakes and dare I say lies of churchianity. Churchianity says what you do on Sunday matters and what you do at this event matters and what you do at this outreach matters. And I say to you, Christ is concerned with you going to the beach you going to the soccer field, you going to work, you going on vacation, you going to school, you going all of it. Matter of fact, Christ is far more concerned with the way you live your everyday life with gospel intention than whether or not you ever do an outreach. Can I say that? See, every believer is an ambassador for Christ. They represent him. They're commanded to proclaim him wherever they go, where they live, where they work, where they learn, where they play. And as a new creation, you have changed, and you start to think more and more about your role as an ambassador. You start caring about God's glory and the lost. You care about people and what they think of Jesus. And so what do we do? What do all of us do? What's our goal here? Like, should I quit my job and I should move to the jungle? And I, I'm here to tell you emphatically, it's not always about quitting your job and moving and being a missionary. And I say that as someone who lived overseas as a missionary. It's about gospel intentionality. It's about doing the ordinary activities of life under the reign of King Jesus, for King Jesus, and by his Spirit's power which is what missionaries do as well, by the way. See, the question is not always, hear me, the question is not always, how do I go and do ministry? The question is not, when are we going to evangelize? This is how churchianity thinks. The question is this, how does grocery shopping, commuting, lunch breaks, bill paying, vacation going, work, sports, skating, dance momming, soccering, swimming, and all the other stuff of life, how does that change because of Jesus? Are you guys following me? How do you function as an ambassador in those areas? Because I'm going to tell you the truth. That's where you're going to lead people to the Lord. That's where you're going to disciple friends who have never grown in their faith. And so if you flip over your lyric sheet, I want to show you just a really simple tool. I didn't make this up. It's from a group of churches called the Soma Network. But I want to talk you through this little chart. 
And you can see right at the top where it says God, missional community, neighbors. Just think of that as we would say up, in, and out. All right? Up, in, and out. Connecting with God, God's people, and the world. So bless is, to bless is we intentionally bless others through serving them, through encouraging them, through giving, and through thinking about those around us instead of just focusing on ourselves as we, focus on, as we start focusing on others. So what I mean by this is as you go about your life, as you're at something that you do every week, you know, let's say you bring your kids, um, you know, to, to gymnastics. You should be thinking to yourself, Lord, who can I be a blessing to in this environment? How can I be a blessing to my kids in the drive up? How can I be a blessing to the other parents who are here? You know, you're at the skate park with your kids. You're thinking through the same things. Not let's have fun alone, though you should have fun. But how do I, who can I bless here? How can I bless the kids? How can I bless my spouse? How can I bless the people who are here? How can I intentionally bless them by serving them, encouraging them, giving something to them if they have need, thinking about them? The second thing is listening. Listening. Do you realize the power of intentionally listening to another person? Instead of being half on your phone, half on your laptop, half doing a hobby, intentionally listening to their questions, giving them your focus, giving them your attentiveness, hearing their story, hearing what they're actually saying as they share with you. You see, because that guides your heart, it guides your prayers, it guides your focus. And so as we go out among life, we say, I want to bless, I want to bless, I want to be a blessing. Just like it talks about in the Abrahamic covenant about how God's people would be a blessing, right? I want to be a blessing. And part of that is as this person is engaging with me, I pay attention to them and I focus and I listen to them. I hear their heart because as I hear their heart, what do I know how to do? Be a blessing to them. The third thing is eating. I love eating. Intentionally eating, sharing meals, sharing coffee, sharing those critical moments. You realize how much of Jesus' ministry was done around a table over a meal? These are the things that we should be doing. Eating, instead of working through your lunch break, sitting with a coworker and eating together and hearing a little bit about their heart. Are you sharing your heart with them? It's something you already had to do. Speaking, intentionally speaking the truth of Jesus by graciously yet boldly proclaiming the gospel in all scenarios of life. That doesn't mean awkwardly. We talked about that last week, right? But it does mean reading the word with people. It means when your friend says, I'm really stressed and discouraged. You say, you know, when I'm stressed and discouraged, one of the things I do is read Psalm 23. Have you ever read that? And you share that Psalm with them and let the scripture be a blessing to them. That's speaking the truth of God to people. And as they are more and more interested, you keep giving them more because that's what we're called to do. And then the final S is Sabbath. To rest. Intentionally work, yes. But you know what? Intentionally rest. Like David shared, you know, about when he was on vacation. Intentionally rest. Intentionally play with other people. By all means, you like hunting? You like duck hunting with other people? 
bring people along and intentionally enjoy every good and perfect gift that comes from God above together. Intentionally enjoy those things. Enjoy the fruit of the gospel. Enjoy God's creation. And when we do this, we celebrate God's goodness together to us, and it fills us with joy. And people see that we are a joy-filled people and not just dutiful people who are overbearing. Any questions about that BLESS acronym? Does it kind of demystify discipleship a little bit? Oh, thank goodness for one of you. My goodness. All right, so listen, two weeks ago we talked about how Revolve's local vision is to saturate the county with healthy disciples and healthy groups of disciples and equipping you guys to that end. And I want you to realize this. This is a paradigm shift not from Revolve, this is what we've been talking about for nine years, but it's a paradigm shift from the way most churches in America do ministry. If we want to saturate the county with healthy disciples who can make disciples, healthy followers of Jesus who can help other people follow Jesus, if that's our hope and our goal, it will never happen alone through church events and organized outreaches. It won't. You will not scale with the population and with inflation rate. It will happen when every man, woman, and child begins to live out this new identity of being a new creation and having this new task of being an ambassador where they live, work, learn, and play. And if you're in an environment and you say, well, I don't know how to do this at my work, you simply think through that BLESS acronym. How can I be a blessing to my coworkers today? Oh, my coworkers trying to say something to me? Can I pause? And for a moment, forsake my idol of efficacy and for a moment pause and hear their heart. Because their heart in the scheme of eternity is far more important than if I accomplish this task right now. Can I pause and listen to them? And then can I share in response? See, this is the way that we truly make disciples as we ourselves are saturated by the gospel and the word. And I see so many of you doing this already, and I'm proud. As Paul would say, we don't have a spectacular ministry, but I think we have a sincere one, and that gives me joy when I'm not being an idiot. So use the BLESS acrostic for your family, for your discipleship group, for your coworkers. And if you are living with this kind of gospel intentionality, I know God will open up doors. And you will have opportunities to invite your friends and family and coworkers and people you do hobbies with to grow in Jesus together and to help them follow Jesus better. All right, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the fact that, uh, as Rich Mullins once said, sometimes I think the meaning of life is to live, but to live with gospel intentionality. God, that as you change us, it's not always about doing different activities, which is what we've made our Christianity into, but it's about doing the same activities of life through a different framework and lens of purpose. God, forgive us, for, forgive me for being someone who's often far more concerned about what I'm doing than who I am in all that I'm doing. I pray, God, that we would break down these paradigms of ministry as program, and we would realize that it is loving Jesus and loving others as a way of life.
pray that you would surprise us with what you're going to do as we learn to bless and to be a blessing. In your name we pray. Amen.